Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly live stream Q&A for January 2021. We'll get to your questions in just a moment, but you may have noticed, uh, as I mentioned coming into this session for the day, Sarah, my wife, who usually asks the questions, is not going to be here today, we're instead going to be joined by my friend David Thomas, who will be reading out the questions as we go. And we'll go ahead and get started. Yes, I'm certainly not as good looking as Sarah is, so <laughs> I apologize to your audience, but thank you so much, Isaac, this is really exciting. So Isaac, your first question. My question is, could you explain or go deeper into sci-fi or interstellar ship crew compositions. Information about that topic is of course very scarce, but I would like to hear your opinion on it. How big would they need to be? Uh, what are the numbers like? Um, like in Star Wars or in 40K, they seem way too high though. Um, you know, one of the things you have pop up a lot in science fiction is the ships are either very small, like the size of a bus, or they are the size of a state or city. And there's a certain amount of accuracy that. Yet the, uh, the big reveal on, on the, you know, the Star Destroyer in the original Star Wars New Hope episode 4, uh, it just rolls on screen, it's huge. And that franchise, they actually had the crew compliments about right. Uh, they are talking about like tens of thousands of people on more than one of those things, or even hundreds of thousands, um, which is still a little on the low side. And with a lot of automation, you might not need that many people, but then when Star Trek decided to do the next generation about the new Enterprise, the ship's basically supposed to be like half a mile long, and it's got like 40 decks, like, oh, there's a thousand people on board this ship. And you think about how big the ship is at that point in time, or even with ones like 40K where they say they cram a million people on one of those ships is like 10 kilometers long, you think, oh, it must be packed. But you run the numbers on that, you realize that even if 90% of it was places no one could actually enter, They'd still have like one person per warehouse densities inside the place, um, and of course, for a lot of ships, that's probably all you really need is that level with all the automation. But the question then becomes, why is the ship so big? And with something like a fusion torch drive, you might have to have it that big just because fusion engines are pretty much always going to have an efficiency tied to their size. The bigger they are, the more efficient and they're likely to be. Um, and uh, although, of course, till we get one, we're not going to know. So you might get really big ships that way, and then it's just, what are you doing with the rest of the ship? Um, and empty space is pretty much free in space. We don't have air friction either. So you could get those really big ships. The other thing, though, is the fleet sizes. Um, it makes sense to have hundreds of thousands of crew on a big starship if you've got trillions and trillions of people. If you've got thousands of planets in your star empire, you should have populations of many trillions, if not quadrillions. And if one out of a thousand people is in your navy... Uh, then you should have billions or trillions of people in this office. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, it's strange though it sounds with Warhammer 40k being probably the least realistic sci-fi franchise even compared to Star Wars, scientifically speaking. They always get the numbers and scale right. So, Imagine paying for all those people. Oh, good God, yeah. <laughs> well, I think in 40k they're usually slave gangs. They, they, they pick up on plants and empty out the prisons and the 
<laughs> At least for the junior ranks. Give slaves guns. That's that's a good idea. <laughs> Next question, Isaac. I'm assuming this is speaking to your, one of your last shows. At uh, six uh, minutes twenty six seconds, that view of the rest of your studio surprised me. It seems like to be a normal room with no acoustic tile. My son, with a degree in film production, tells me there's software that cancels out echoes. Are you using that? And at eleven thirty five, you mentioned the tapestry to help with sound absorption. Um, actually, uh, David, you want to roll the sure. camera on. You might be able to see the... Let me switch over to his one real quick. You can probably see the camera on the tapestry right now. Uh, that is pretty much um, <laughs> the studio. And for the most part, it's the desk, because, again, we mostly just record audio in here. And um, the tapestries help to absorb noise. There is uh, an insulation in the wall that was picked specifically to help with sound reduction when I had the office built. Uh, we'll probably be changing studios in about four months, too, to go for something a little bit bigger and more professional, but uh, there's actually got drop sound tiles and things. But for the most part, um, where sound's concerned, you know, you need to eliminate any background sounds you've got, but I live out in the country, so uh, there's usually not too much of it to begin with, and there is sound deadening in the walls right around me. But mostly you just try to limit the sound that's going on there. So if the air conditioner is running, I have to shut it off, for instance, when we're recording this in the summer times. Uh, which can get very hot. But other than that, you know, more sound stuff helps, but we don't really use anything specific. This is a USB condenser mic with a cardioid filter, so it kind of filters directly towards me. You can probably see the thing right there. <laughs> uh, so that's the studio. It's a very neat setup. Really, really nice. So next question, Isaac. I'm glad I could catch the last SFI live stream of the year. Here are my two questions. Now that the year's over, what are your thoughts on 2020? And what do you expect to happen in 2021 besides the continuation of fighting the pandemic, of course? And question two, when technology in some areas slows down in advancement for a long time, do you think that will change the definition of what is considered old technology? Why or why not? Oh, hi again, Albert. He's one of our regular uh, question fellow. I'm sure he's here today too. That's, that's all the questions we have from last time coming in. Uh, while we get to the questions in. Um, I'd say the big wrap-up I have on 2020 is um, is just that, as a rule, everyone is going to pretend the year never happened. It's, it's going to be one of those years. Um, because it's been, for most people, a very bad year. It's actually been a really good year for me, personally. Uh, <laughs> and Sarah would agree with that. <laughs> no, she would not. She had the year, too. I think us getting married was like the one up spot of the whole thing. <laughs> hmm. I don't know if she went on a seat, too, but uh, let's see. Um... And I'd say that the biggest technological advancement we're going to see is probably going to be how to actually manage people's locations with privacy in mind. Um, with, uh, you know, I want to know where people's location is. I can turn on my phone and people can ID where I'm at at what time and so forth. We can keep all that anonymously somewhere. And we keep everybody else's that way too if they opt in. Say you had a policy that was an opt in. So that if you got sick, say your Fitbit that you're wearing told you you were running a fever it could instantly ping it up to some system which would automatically ping everybody else who had been within contact of you anonymously within the last, you know, X number of times saying, hey, you are near someone who's got a fever, get yourself checked. And obviously that's very simplistic, but that's the sort of approach that I think you're going to see is how do we do that? Not just for this epidemic, but for all the other ones that are minor flu things. I do think this is probably going to be our last epidemic ever. And I don't think that's very optimistic, but... This is probably going to be it because there's going to be so much advancement, so much focus on it, and this one was very close. It almost did not happen. 
So that would be my big thought for that. As to what would qualify as old tech, there's no such thing as old tech. You know, the original six tools are what, the screw, the axe, the, or the wedge, um, the lever, and some other ones that escape my mind, we still use them all the time. Uh, so I don't really think of new tech and old tech. New is just something that cousin recently came out with and never gets to be old. So, all right, so I guess we can move on to the questions okay. from this weekend, which we should have had a chance to have gotten them into to the uh, moderators by now. <laughs> yeah, let's certainly hope that your prediction that this is one of the last pandemics is, uh, is very true. So here's a question for you, very topical for this past week. If you were interviewing Elon Musk, what were some of the questions that you would ask him? Um, hmm. If I were interviewing Elon Musk, what's some of the questions I would ask him? Uh, why on earth did he smoke pot while he's on Joe Rogan? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a fan of, of Elon Musk. I, I, I notice that people tend to break into they either really like Elon or they really hate Elon. I, I tend to be in the category of I have a great deal of respect for him and his work, uh, but he makes mistakes too. Uh, I think he's a great guy. Questions I'd ask him is basically... Um, what's next? Because every time I bet against him, he's turned out to be... Um, you can come on in, by the way, if you like. Right? Um, uh, there's another person in the studio with us today. So. <laughs> but um, probably just something along those lines. Uh, that, uh, you know, what's the next project? What's what's the details of what you see happens after Mars? Are you interested in asteroid mining? But the thing is, he tends to let us know his new ideas all as soon as he got them pretty well compartmentalized. So I think that's... Uh, just kind of wait and see. He's, he's fun to watch. He's like Edison or Tesla that way. A uh, quick side note, I saw from Sindri, um, one of our moderators, he uh, asked about if I was aware that I was uh, an advisor voice for the mod for Stellaris, and the answer was yes, I am uh, in that video game mod, and I did agree to record those, <laughs> and I actually made up about half of them. They all strange ones. For those of you who don't know the Stellaris video game, um, we sometimes use their music. They're from Paradox. They lent it out to us, but... Uh, one of the more active players asked if I would do a, a mod for the advisor. Basically, says things like, "Your ship has been completed. You know, you are getting a new communication." And so, there's there is a mod for me that I recorded those, and I thought it was fun to do. So, feel free to go check that out. <laughs> the next question. You've gone truly virtual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Isaac, how on mega structures would you simulate hydrothermal activity, like you see in Yellowstone or other volcanic places? That is tricky. Um, the the thing that I would say is you can always simulate something like that uh whether or not you should it's kind of like with magnetospheres you can produce a magnetosphere on a planet by speeding up the core and nuking it over and over again or you could just wrap a wire around the planet and turn it on yeah, it's not hard to generate a magnetic field you don't need trillions and trillions of tons of, of spinning hot molten metal to do it um and you don't really need trillions of tons of, of molten uh you know magma to keep your landscaping refreshing you could just have robots that could come like drain out your empty ocean bales and bring them back up to the top when they have too much sediment. But to actually simulate hydrothermal vents, I think I would just go really, really simplistic and put a pump and a heater in underneath the ground somewhere and have it toned on. You like know? a fish tank. Basically, yeah. Keep it simple. Uh, next question. So, Isaac, could neutron stars be viable for Hadron Collider? Possibly by dropping a white dwarf in one, and could stable charm quark matter be made with one? If you dropped a white dwarf into a neutron star, it would cause. Well, actually, I was going to say it cause a supernova, but I'm not sure that, that would happen. Uh, I think you would get a lot of gold from that. Actually, two neutron stars colliding would get you a lot of gold. Two white dwarfs would get you other heavy metals. You get a bunch of heavy metals out of that collision and a big explosion. Um, 
and then a black hole. I, I don't think there's very many white dwarfs that would be too unmassive that if you add them to a neutron star, that wouldn't be enough to kick it over the limit. Um, well, maybe not. You might just get a bigger neutron star out of it. Uh, I don't think you'd get any... Well, I mean, you could get some very interesting quark effects, to be sure. But the thing about neutron stars is they all made out of neutrons. They all up and down quarks still. We don't have any solid reason to think they are strange or, or charm matter in there, though it's been speculated that that might be the case. Beneath that level, at the quark star level, which is the thought to be the thing between neutron stars and black holes, or neutron stars and Planck stars, maybe, but that's one of those ones where I have to refer you to a particle physicist. Um, maybe, I don't know if he's on here right now, but um, uh, Paul Sutter from Ohio State, uh, we've done a collaboration with him for that, probably more up his alley. Hmm. Ask a spaceman, that's the show. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. So it seems like the phrase, it's never aliens, is being taken too far in SETI. It is always the last thing to consider, as if the very notion is downright unscientific. I know about Occam's razor, and if I mispronounce any of these things, I, I am greatly sorry, and the history of false alarms. But with more and more instruments coming online that are capable of detecting alien civilizations, shouldn't we be holding out the possibility as being a lot more likely out of intellectual honesty? Occam's razor. <laughs> I pronounced it right. Okay. Yeah, oh, no, but we're not. It's, it's, it's SETI, not SETI, but SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial oh. Intelligence, for those who don't know, often called SETI. Uh, um, and Occam's Razor, for those who don't know, is, is the idea that the simplest and most obvious solution is probably the correct one. Um, and uh, Occam's Razor often cuts very sharply and sometimes cuts incorrectly. Um, and, uh, you know, we have the... I did not know what this actual meme was for some years of running the show, but there's a guy who's got Einstein levels of hail, uh, who, always, who was on the History Channel a lot, who was known for basically saying, it's, I'm not saying it's aliens, but it's always aliens. And the counter meme that I guess I got hit with was, I'm not saying it's not aliens, yes I am, or it's never aliens. Uh, and, You're a meme? <laughs> tons of memes. <laughs> and, um, but I don't think I have the hair for it. Although, although I usually comb mine off for fixtures. If I you catch me walking around the house most time, I usually have my hair all puffy. Um, so, um, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is positive that they are a small aliens somewhere inside our own galaxy. I tend to assume they are not, so I tend to assume the answer is always going to be something natural. But you should never be ruling out. That's the mistake people make on that too. It shouldn't be the first thing you go to. Um, you should always be looking for natural phenomena first. Um, but well, actually, that's not even true either. You shouldn't be looking for natural, artificial phenomena for us. You should be looking for the simplest explanation. And in astronomical cases, that's usually going to be something natural and has been the case every time so far we've had a chance to get an answer. We have a lot of unexplained phenomena still, too, that might be artificial in origin. Um, you're looking for the right answer. Whether it's you know, uncomfortably alien or it's natural or whatever it is, the right answer is the right answer. And you shouldn't reel it out. But, like, when Tabby Star came out, one of the first things a lot of people said is, oh, everyone's saying it's aliens again. And they said, well, all the people in the, in the field didn't think it was. No, everyone I know in the field, the first thing they thought in their head was, I wonder if it's aliens. They almost instantly ruled it out. You know, it's probably not, but it was the thought that went through your head. That might be a Dyson swarm. You know, that might be aliens. Maybe they didn't think it was very probable, but it, the thought went through their heads. Everyone who's in science is a geek. They've all watched Star Trek, you know, Star Wars, etc. Of course you thought it was aliens for at least a brief moment. Um, and then you try to rule that one out. But my usual philosophy is if it is artificial, it's going to show up as artificial for a bunch of reasons. If you stumble across one screwdriver or a hammer or a hammer in nature that's kind of rock-shaped, you might say, well, maybe that's a natural object. 
But when you walk into a tool shop, yeah, that's artificial. And no one's going to be like, I wonder if this is a naturally occurring workshop. I wonder if this toolbox is just naturally occurring somewhere. No, you know it's artificial. And I think with our first contact with aliens, it's probably going to be something like that. You know, when the flying saucer lands on the flight house front line, you're not like, I wonder if that's an asteroid. No. <laughs> That'd be a great way to end out 2020, but it didn't quite happen. Maybe it wouldn't even be the most interesting, exciting, or crazy thing that happened in 2020. No. <laughs> <laughs> Could be a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> so next question, Isaac. Can a planet that is tidally locked to its star have continents and oceans that move in and out of the twilight zone of the planet, forcing life onto land or water? I'm sorry, can you say that one again? Sure. Can a planet that is tidally locked to its star have continents and oceans that move in and out of the twilight zone of the planet, forcing life onto land or water? Yes. Well, I haven't thought about that, but, um, um, I mean, over geological times, they, they should actually migrate, although maybe less so because the way the tidal locking happens is it's kind of a friction effect that's happening on the planet. The planet gets distended. We actually have an episode... Well, actually, sorry, the episode just came out last week. We had an episode recently discussing all this, so I won't repeat myself on that, but the planet's kind of being broken into a cycle of one orbit per one tide by being pulled. So it's possible that all the continents would stay locked in place at that point. But you could potentially have continental drift move things around and and potentially cause something like that. Um, For that matter... If you have enough ice, it's possible you can have ecologies on top of glaciers, even if it's just a little bit of dust or volcanism that deposits a little bit of nutrient up there. Life is surprisingly adaptive, and uh, if you've got motion on the planet, it's going to try to adapt, I should think. But uh, it depends on what we mean by life. There's a microbiologist sitting in the room right now, by the way, so um, she could probably say it better than I could. You get weird extremophiles showing up, and they do live in glaciers. We found them everywhere. We have lakes underneath Antarctica that have had life in them. So even if we don't have continents drifting, you are going to have motion on that planet and life in those zones is going to have to adapt. Yeah. That's a, that was a wonderful question. Yeah, very neat. So now using weather control on megastructures, how close could you get completely contrasting environments, like having a desert or a tundra right next to each other? Mm, I mean, there's nothing really stopping you, depending on how artificial you want to be with it. Once you leave aside trying to go for natural, and there's nothing natural about like an O'Neill cylinder, you could just go ahead and have a membrane of something like a, a glass between two layers that uh, was mostly designed to confine the humidity. You could do forced air walls like you see when you go into stores, the bigger stores in the wintertime up, up north where we have ice and snow. They have uh, what's called an air curtain, which is basically a blower that blows really strong to keep you, the separation of cold and hot. Always messes up my hair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they hope for that. But uh, you know, that, that sort of thing could allow you to create two really, really different environments within spinning distance of each other. Um, you know, your light control doesn't have to be one big omnidirectional light like ours is. It can be a long strip uh, running down the axis of that cylinder. It can be, it, you can change the light spectra. You can make it so some areas were very bright in the green frequencies. Others were very bright in the red. Others were mostly infrared. You know, you have so many options to change things around that you could pack them in pretty tight. I don't know if you could do what we call the microplanet, uh, Rick and Morty, where they had the planet there, they zoomed into it with their ship, and the ship smacked into it because they didn't realize the planet was that close and was only about the size of a football field. Uh, but, uh, you know, theoretically, with some of those smaller habitats, you could get biomes that were disgustingly tiny with macroscopic critters in them. Hmm. Next question. So how would you grapple an asteroid to swing from it and change your trajectory if it's mostly gravel. Carefully. 
Um, when you shoot an asteroid that's mostly made out of gravel, you're going to have the effect of spalling even worse than when you normally hit some piece of space debris at high speed. Um, so carefully. <laughs> your tether is... It depends on how fast you're going. You can't turn too fast. This is a mistake folks make sometimes when we think about orbits. Say, so what is the turning radius around Earth? Uh, you know, it depends on your speed. And the turning radius when you're orbiting right above Earth is the actual orbital speed that we go at. That's why you have no gravity on board. You are experiencing 1G of turn, or 0.99 to up a little bit above the planet. And um, you need a very long tether to swing at that kind of speed. Then to, you need one that was 6,000 kilometers long in order to grapple something while you're moving 11 kilometers a second or 8 kilometers a second in turn direction uh, without smashing yourself against your own hull. Um, so in a way, your tether has to be pretty long to begin with for it to be no useful. Um, but with them being made mostly out of gravel, uh, I'm not really sure why you try to swing that way, though. Um, you can get things into them pretty deep, and they're not all gravel. Some of them are pretty hard metals. Um, even then, you can, you know, if you've ever tried to put a, a stake into sand or gravel before, you, if you pound in pretty tight, it's not moving much anywhere. Uh, it's it's held in there pretty tightly, so you should be able to do it. But I don't think it's a maneuver you should really be trying to do much. Mm. An asteroid made of sand—that'd be a sight to see. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually—I uh, think I got thought of them that are basically just mostly silicon. Huh. It's just sand, yeah. That's uh, they they have like old quartz in some cases, but actually almost all the rocks are silicon and oxygen, so they're almost all sand. <laughs> I'm learning. Mm. Next question: So, do you think there is an alien species? that already know of our existence. No. Um, I mean, again, the usual thing on this is we have no way of knowing, but if they're older than us and they live anywhere nearby us, like in this galaxy, um, and they're technological, then yeah, they, they know about us. They knew about us before we, we knew about ourselves. Because uh, you don't have to find radio signals to find a planet. You can find traces of its, you know, freakishly high concentrations of oxygen in its atmosphere, which really should not occur. And there might be natural processes that would give you high concentrations of oxygen in the atmosphere, but um, you'd still probably go and investigate each single one of those. You know, oxygen should not be floating around in the atmosphere. It should be reacting chemically and getting itself bound up to the ion. They should have known about us before we were walking out of the, out of the jungles. They should have known about us before, and, you know, however old they were, plus whatever the light lag is, their planet some 10,000 or 100,000 years, whatever it is, that's when they knew about us, you know, and... Uh, it's just very improbable they wouldn't know about us. Whether or not they exist is the question then. But if they do exist, yeah, they know we're here. You can't hide either at that point, too, because astronomy is history. You, you can't shut your radio beacons off now. You know, they, they already hold them. No place to hide. No place to hide. <laughs> I have a question now. If NASA announces they have FTL drive, where do you want to send the probe first outside of our own solar system? I guess it would depend on what the distances are. We tend to assume, even with most FTL drives, that closer is still easier. That's a bit debatable. Like the Alcubierre warp drive, uh, theoretically, you could go at intergalactic velocities uh, very quickly, up to hundreds of thousands of light years a second, potentially. In which case, the places you go to are the most interesting ones to go to. Like, you go to the nearest black hole to take measurements, the nearest neutron star. Um, but Alpha Centauri is... is a very interesting system. It is the closest, although arguably Proxima, which is the closest one, might not be part of that system. We just tend to assume it was. Um, but uh, go visit that one because it does have a lot of interesting stuff going on to it. But Sirius B, Sirius A, um, Tau Ceti, uh, and most of the Trappist systems that are near enough to be visible will be 
Hogwarts go to. But. Next question. Do you think we will eventually subclassify M and B type stars due to the massive range of stars those classes cover? Also, how prized would giant stars like Regal be for colonization? Very. Uh, we have an episode that's on that at the end of the upcoming month, uh, colonizing giant stars, where you know, there's this notion that you shouldn't colonize the big ones because they're going to go boom. Um, and basically, I'm not going to spoil the episode because it's coming out this month, uh, so you can watch it then, but we will challenge that assumption that you wouldn't want to colonize these highly explosive and short-lived stars, and rather that they would be the most valuable ones out there. Um, as for just the the M-type stars in the first place, the red dwarfs, the ones that make up most of the stars now that we know better, um, you know, I'm telling you whether or not we include brown dwarfs. Um, so I got distracted by my cat walking through all the wires for the cameras. He's so a cutie. Yeah, it's an annoying moment, though, because what if he what if he trips and knocks them all over? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, M-type stars, the red ones, uh, they really should be broken into at least a few categories, I'd say. But the the, the big one would be the ones that are going to go into blue dwarfs, those ones under a quarter of a solar mass, and those that are bigger. Um, that probably should be two separate classes, but I don't know if they'll bother me doing that. Truth be told, the color spectrum ones, you know, M, K, G, O, A, I'm saying these out of the order. I think they go as well as it. O, B, A, F, A, L, A, O, B, F, A, K, G, O, well, whichever the case happens to be. Uh, there's a, there is a, no, it doesn't matter. There's a, some, one of those, oh, golly, oh, boy, nah, doesn't matter. Move you along. <laughs> How I don't think those ones will really stick around as a system of classification much longer. <laughs> well, here's a, talking about the future. How likely is it that far future will be terrible? How can we reduce S risks, i.e. risks of extreme suffering in the far future? Um, you know, sometimes the thing about the future is not to try to solve all the problems that are in the future. Um, we talk about colony arc ships that are going to be traveling through space for potentially thousands of years or thousands of generations, uh, they, we had the question of how do we make sure those people stay on the same target and all the same society when they arrive after all those generations? And a thing that people don't ask too much is, is it really our business to be doing that? Do you want someone who's been dead for a thousand years, let alone a thousand generations? Do you want their core dead hand around your neck telling you what to do? Whatever the motives are, no matter how good they are, um, I generally don't believe that folks who lived centuries ago understand our situation any better than we do right now because I don't think they are smart enough, per se. I don't think they're dumb with us. That's a mistake. Don't think of the folks in the past as dumb. But they weren't any smarter than us, and uh, they didn't have the information we have. You know, it's hard to predict a century ahead of time what the problem's going to be. Um, you know, I, I think with the, the most famous science fiction series, The Foundation by my namesake, as Gasmov, um, great series, love it. Uh, but if I had been the foundation leaders, I would have gone smashed up the uh, the hologram thing within a fourth century Havian. I don't want him to, you know guiding our future, good or ill. We can do it on our own, and whatever he knew, we should know and understand better. So the same thing that applies to the future is, I don't want to create a system or a world where all the problems are solved because then they don't have anything to do. And what's more, my solution probably isn't going to have been a good one. And if they all Descends of all who are worthy of, of the uh, the honor, as it were, um, assuming they don't view us with contempt, but whichever case happens to be, they should be able to handle their own problems. We don't want to leave problems on them, but I don't think it's our job to try to solve them all for them either, if that makes sense. I think we got time for one more question before we go to the break. Alrighty, last question before break. What do you think about the Younger Dryas event, and could it have wiped out an advanced civilization on Earth? 
I'm trying to remember if the Younger Dryas event was the one from like 12,000 years ago or 70,000 years ago. Um, I know one was the one that started to have emptied out the, uh, not the Black Sea, obviously, but of drained the Black Sea a little bit. And the other was the Impact event that was about 70,000 years ago. Um, and what was the actual question attached to that again? So do you think it would have wiped out an advanced civilization on Earth? Oh, no. I mean, it maybe it could have knocked over some ones that were pretty close, but and of course we had that with the um, I can't what they're called right now. I think we'll probably actually call that the the Indus Valley civilization. It starts with an H, um, but uh, that was around there like five thousand years ago. Very advanced in many ways. They had like bricks and standard templates for a lot of stuff. Same for a lot of things. We had them pop up, but they didn't really stick around. Um, and I don't think they really lost technology that often. When civilizations fall, they don't tend to use, you know, whatever technology is useful sticks around. So usually they use things like aqueducts because they're not doing aqueducts anymore. But I don't think civilizations tend to be the first things to fall when um, when you have rough times because they're the most robust in many ways. The weakest too, but they'll pop back up within a generation a lot of times in some new format. All right, we're going to go ahead and head to break, and we'll see you in a little bit. We'll be on break for a few minutes while I refresh my coffee, and it's a great time to grab a drink and a snack yourself or get some more questions into our chat. You've probably noticed my wife and usual co-host Sarah is not present today, she's attending a friend's wedding, and congratulations to Robin and Holly Nisley. Instead we're joined today by someone who was a groomsman in my own wedding, a longtime friend of Sarah and I, David Thomas, who also happens to be the Ashbeeler County Auditor, having gotten elected to the role in 2018 at the age of 25. I've known David since he was in his teens serving on the zoning board of Austinbrook Township, one town over from mine, and he spent much of the time in between at college and working in state and federal government positions with the state legislature and U.S. Congress. He came home after that to serve as Austinbrook's fiscal officer while working on his MBA and then was elected county auditor and is our youngest elected county official. He has definitely brought a lot of enthusiasm and technical knowledge to the post, and one of his more interesting adaptations during the COVID-19 crisis was posting videos discussing taxes and regulations, while simultaneously hosting a cooking show from his kitchen home, which are probably the most interesting discussions of topics like property valuation and taxes in existence. I often like to use our monthly live stream break to highlight one of the many folks who help out on the show, and I wanted to thank David for taking the time to guest co-host today. I've mentioned before how lucky I've been over the years and folks I've gotten to call friend, many with the show and many locally over my time in college or the military, and in this last year when we often haven't gotten to spend as much time with our friends as we are used to, it helps to remind us how much we should appreciate all those folks in our life. They can help out in tough times, even if just by being there, and I hope you got some folks like that in your own life. Uh, That's an interesting note on futurism, someone commented to me not too long back how things like social media were never expected on the internet when the concept was new, and this may be true but is an example of how we probably should have seen that developing, because technology is something we use to enhance our lives and further our goals and priorities, and humans are innately social critters, so it stands to reason that any technology that can be used in that way will tend to be once someone thinks of a way to do so. On a channel-related note, before we get back to the show, we recently altered our format on Patreon to switch to a monthly donation system, something Patreon offered as one of their two principal donation methods for years, but we have always done the other one, the poor creation or poor thing option, and Patreon has been encouraging us to switch for a while to add additional functionality, and we finally have. The transition appears to have gone quite smoothly, but I want to thank all of our patrons for their continued support and patience during that switch. 
I used to use the poor thing option because I didn't think it was right to charge folks unless a video had come out, but I'd only do it for the regular Thursday episode, which is why I always afford to the extra episodes that came out occasionally as bonus episodes, uh, they began as a bit of an extra thank you or bonus to those patrons as I didn't charge for that episode. Since we are switching to monthly and we have gotten to the regular habit of doing an extra episode mid-month on Sundays and the end of the month live stream, I started mentally switching to thinking of those mid-month bonus episodes as sci-fi Sundays as the bonus episodes tend to be more relaxed, science fiction discussion type episodes, like our Star Trek Prime Directive Fully Paradox episode of a couple months back, this month's Machine Overlords episode, or the one for February, Coalien Habitation, which is probably about as close as we'll ever get to doing the often-requested Sexy Aliens episode for the Alien Civilization series, and we will be looking at both how you'd build a space station or habitat with multiple alien species living in it, and how alien-human marriages or half-alien, half-human folks might come to be. And speaking of marriages, congratulations again to Robert and Holly on their happy day, and thanks again to David Thomas for filling in for my wife Sarah while she attends their wedding. With all that said, let's get back to our show. Okay, so we are ready for more questions. Yes, and I will now say who the question's from, so I apologize for those folks previously. So, <laughs> question from Cluckery Duckery, that's a fun name. What would you think is the rough timeline for us to start having civilizations living and working in space on a large scale? Do you think it's centuries, years, decades? Uh, I mean, it kind of depends on what we mean by large scale here. We will have people working in space within... 20 years ago, um, but we'll probably have hundreds of people working out there up there at a given time sometime this century. It should be in the hundreds uh, at a given time this century. Whether it gets in the thousands, they're actually at a given time working up there this century is hard to say. Assume thousands of people are going to go into space uh, in a given year in, in the not too distant future, maybe in the next decade or two, but probably more like 20 years from now. After that, it's just when do we hit that snowball? When do we get that point that... Um, you can make a profit doing something in space. Um, and uh, I think that that time is still going to be a bit far ahead. Even then, a lot of the stuff you can make money on, like mining an asteroid, that can be probably a lot better done by a robot. <laughs> so he wouldn't necessarily have a big crew up there. But you have a lot of folks in orbit, maybe. Hmm. So maybe robots in space more. Mm -hmm. So next question is from the Hebrew Barrister. Oh, this is a great one. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or ten duck-sized horses? Uh, what I'm going to assume you mean by that question is would a combat robot that was horse-sized uh, have an advantage over 10 duck-sized uh, combat drones? <laughs> so, um, and uh, to, to answer the more actual question, because uh, of the family farm we have, ducks and horses, uh, I would rather get in a fight with 10 ducks than a given horse. I also hate ducks because one built me at the built bit me when I was a kid at Gulfyard Park down in Minotaur. So, um, they have a really nice duck pond there, uh, celebrating our, our president Gulfyard, who was from this area. And I used to go feed the ducks there. They had little bread machines for you to do that, and they bit me. And I hate ducks because of that and geese. Ducks are good for eating. That's, that's about yes, it. Yes, that's that's about <laughs> it. Yeah. Next question is from Augusto Ascuti. What happens if a gamma ray burst from a nearby supernova hit the sun? Hit all sun. Oh, an awful lot of nothing. Uh, an awful lot of nothing. There was a lot of gamma... I mean, if it was a full-on, highly-focused beam that was transferring all the energy that thing had somehow, via like a wormhole, yes, it would heat the sun up an awful lot, and the sun would go hot over for a while as a result, but realistically, it, it barely had any effect. Same as if, like, if the sun went supernova, 
Um, it wouldn't even destroy Jupiter. It would evaporate a good portion of its upper atmosphere. Um, Saturn would still be around. Um, it's even vaguely possible we might have something of Pluto left behind just because it's far away, but it's mostly an ice ball. The supernovas are incredibly powerful, but they still have to you know, obey the inverse square law. Next question is from Alexander uh, Padakchev. How easy would it be for a rogue group to go off and establish a rogue colony? For example, the origins of the Romulans from Star Trek. You know, I'm not up enough on most recent canon changes to know what the origins of the Romulans were. I know they and the Vulcans had broken apart at some point in the past. Um, but uh, I, I suppose it depends on which canon it is. Um, the ability to evoke colony, it just depends on how good your spaceships are and how um, centralized whoever was running the show feels like being, because it is really easy to blow up uh, an outbound spaceship. You cannot escape a star system uh, unless, unless you've got way more guns than the other guy has. It's too easy to blow up star ships. You cannot run away. It doesn't even matter if your engines are fast or... Because, and here's the big one, if they're running on fuel, you have to use fuel to slow down. They, on the other hand, if they're pursuing you, can use that fuel to speed up because they don't need to stop. They just need to hit you. And the faster they hit you, the more damage they cause. So um, there is no way to escape a solar system to go off and form a rogue colony if they're actively trying to stop you from doing it. Uh, on the other hand, if you're just taking spaceships out into stellar space and you can change course once you're out there and so forth, then yeah, you know, if you can find an empty place, it depends on how far you want to sail. There are billions and billions of empty solar systems in this galaxy. And with the right technology, you could potentially head that colony all the way off into galactic space too. Hmm. Next question is from Dylan. Isaac, do you play Stellaris? Um, only a little bit. Stellaris is, I like Paradox as a game company. They tend to make some of the best games and Stellaris is one of those. I know I'm a huge fan of it on the show too and I love the music from it too but I haven't played it that much or anything else of much of late. I tend to play games that are fairly old that I know really well like the back of my hand when I play games at all anymore. Um, I hate to say it but I tend to spend most of that part of my interest in creativity writing scripts these days instead. So, <laughs> Next question is from Josh. It's a great game though. So. Oh. Oh. Next question is from Josh Karen. Uh, what are your thoughts on the government creating a UFO task force? I think they already had in the past. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Um, I should probably emphasize, there's a tendency to assume that like the Air Force or, or NASA have these UFO sightings and they never pay any attention to them and they hold very secret meetings. But at least to the best of my knowledge, and I actually know some of the folks who have had occasion to work involved with such things in the past, um, they tend to be just as interested in them as everybody else, and they don't tend to make too many assumptions one way or another. Um, and uh, I'm always for forming these, but I don't expect them to find intelligent aliens. I expect them to find interesting new phenomena, like how ball lightning works, or what new, uh, what, was it, what new strange ship our enemies or rivals or nominal allies have come up with, or in many cases, probably what new prototype we've come up with that their department was not supposed to know about and get an angry letter from whoever <laughs> does know about that saying, please stop reporting our test flights, that's ours. <laughs> so, <laughs> suppose that's Space Force. Yeah, <laughs> Next question's from Canadian. Isaac, what is your opinion on universal language currency measuring system? Universal language currency measuring system? I have to admit, I don't actually know what that is. I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to, uh, to, uh, to pass on that one for now. If you want to leave that one in the comments section, because that sounds like an interesting thing to know about, I will try to get back to that later on. Sorry. So next question is from Bodish Bot. Would interstellar spacecraft be configured like a traditional rocket, or would they be configured like the Valkyrie designed by Charles Pellegrino? 
Um, the Valkyrie by Pellegrino, if I remember it right, uh, was a ship thought up in the 90s that used antimatter as its rocket fuel. Um, and it's theoretically the fastest rocket you can make because it's using pure matter to energy conversion. Um, theoretically, it could get up to very close to speed of light. Um, and of course, there's that whole antimatter issue. See, so episode antimatter factories and the uses for <laughs> reasons why that's maybe not the best choice of rocket fuel. Um, but uh, I tend to think if you try to get things up above 10% of light speed, um, I don't think we're ever to find a way to mass produce and store antimatter stupidly cheap compared to just turning a laser beam on a ship that's got sails and pushing it that way. So, um, but I mean, it's still with the basic same rocket design, other than obviously. Antimatter is going to be entirely different in terms of nozzles. You got to use magnetic fields, for instance, for your nozzles. There, you can't be using metal. But we're already moving outside that zone anyway. We just don't have things that can handle that kind of temperature. And you always want your rocket engine as hot as possible. That's the key to getting efficiency out of them. Doesn't mm. matter what the material is you're shooting out the back. Hot rockets. Hot ro yes, exactly. <laughs> so next question, Isaac from Cal, and he asked simply: Simpsons or Futurama? Um, you know, I don't watch The Simpsons anymore. I was a huge fan of The Simpsons up to about season 15. Um, and I just stopped. It doesn't... Even watching the reruns these days doesn't do much for me. Futurama, I, I do love the show. And I'm not knocking Simpsons. It was amazing at the time. I just... I think it got old for me. I liked Futurama, but I was never actually a huge Futurama fan after the first season or two either. And I feel a little treacherous saying that. But I used to joke that Futurama was the most scientifically realistic of shows in many ways. But in much the same way that Warhammer 40K is, it's ridiculous in so many things but occasionally nail some stuff on their head um and, but i would say probably futurama i'd say rick and morty though for anyone who's one of my favorite cartoonists these days hmm. so next question is from technological singularity with animal gupta hi isaac my question to you is why can't people use the money time and resources for saving earth instead of searching for potentially habitable exoplanets um I mean, we can walk and shoot bubblegum at the same time, uh, is, the, is the usual answer anyway. Y you cannot throw money at problems that are scientific and expect them to get solved faster just by throwing money at them. It does help a bit. You know, there's a lot to be, there are things where just tossing money at the problem does tend to speed things up a bit, but only to a degree. Um, people get interested in sciences for a variety of reasons, and you can't suddenly be like, hey, all of you guys who are interested in geology and biology and medical science, we're going to stuff you at... The issue of recycling garbage. And all of you who are interested in physics and astronomy, you too. All of you get in on that issue. And we'll throw as much money away as you want. You can pump up the research and field a lot by doing that, but only to a very limited degree. On the other hand, you can start missing out on stuff. You know, physics, for instance, is that baseline science, same as math, where advances in it tend to spore advances in other fields. Um, we, you know, the new microscope that comes out has to be built around new principles you're going to find in optics or in physics. Um, if you stop doing that, where's your new discoveries coming from that are actually letting them advance those areas? So it's not just a question of can we walk and shoot bubblegum at the same time. It's the question of can we do anything but that? We have to, you know, we have to keep at these things. We have to multitask. And there are, there are almost 8 billion of us now. Almost 8 billion. Hmm. We, we should be able to do more than a few things at once, you know. So that would be my thought on that. So next question is from Void. And he asks, I've heard fusion reactors are more efficient than stars. Could the lack of Dyson spheres be because anyone with the time and resources to make one just star lifts it all to reactors instead? 
that can be the reason why there would be Dyson spheres or Dyson swarms itself. The the idea of the Dyson swarm is if you got a star born in there, you're going to go and globe it with a bunch of other uh, power collectors to make sure you use all that energy. If you're not using them for power, then you should see the normal star. Problem is, if you rip them apart, you're now going to use them to presumably make energy with a commercial fusion reactor or even dumping the matter down a black hole. Say, generating power for black holes, if you can make a black hole, is easy. That's like the easiest power system in the world for advanced matter to energy conversion is dump the stuff down a black hole and absorb the radiation that comes out. Um, and it's ultra-efficient. Um, and it still leaves you a heat signature. And that's the critical thing there. Biological systems are going to be somewhere between 273 Kelvin and 300-some Kelvin. That's just how it's going to be if they're based on water. Um, and that's probably going to be your most common type of life out there because it's hard to come up with a way it could not be, right? Uh, and so they should have their environments showing up at about that temperature. Whatever they're doing that they're living in should be around that temperature. And thus we should see infrared from whatever power source they're off in that zone coming off. They could be spiking other regions. They might be post-human, post-biological. They might exist at 37 Kelvin instead of 370 or whatever it is. Um, and then they'd be a lot cooler, but they'd still be spiking in a specific you know band of, of frequencies that we can't account for. And that's basically the notion of what Dysonian SETI is, is trying to find the waste heat of a civilization. That we say it has to do with Dyson swarms is just that that's the first thing we would think that we would probably tend to do. Um, but it doesn't change that you're looking for their waste heat. That's Dysonian SETI. And basically a Dyson sphere is about absorbing the energy of a star, but it doesn't have to be a Dyson sphere. It could be just a whole bunch of really big reactors that are relatively close together because people don't like to spend a thousand years traveling back and forth to see their neighbor and they don't like to spend a hundred years sending a message to their cousin they they cluster together right as close as they can and that gives you that dense and bright frequency of whatever that waste heat is that's the extent of it so it doesn't matter if they're using stars or not that'd be a pretty important message 100 years yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you got clarification it from... looks overdue <laughs> 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 compound interest on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, clarification from Canadian. Mm -hmm. And uh, Isaac, what is your opinion on going to a universal language currency measuring systems? They clarified and said only using one language, one currency, okay. one measuring system. Okay. Um, you know, way back like two years ago when we were doing the, the pretty new on these ones, we had a lot of typos come through. Somebody asked me, uh, they meant to ask what a vacuum rocket would look like, but it came off as a, uh, uh, it, a vacuum raccoon. <laughs> and I was trying to figure out what that was forever today. Um, switching to a single single system of measurement, switching to a single system of language, there's a lot to be said about standardization. I hate the metric system. I think I've mentioned that to people in the past. The metric system is horrible. And everything people tell me, well, it's actually a pretty good system, but people's assumption that we should only use metric system is just lazy thinking. It really is. Um, sciences are not all in favor of using the metric system. Otherwise, we wouldn't have units like EV or light years. Uh, a year is not metric. The other thing is, they, well, I like using base unit 10. That's not the metric system, that's the decimal system, right? Um, and 10's not all natural number, just we have 10 fingers. We also have 12 knuckles. Most of our counting systems were based on 12 in the past, because it's 3 times 4 is 12, 6 times 2 is 12, 1 divided by 2, etc. Uh, whereas 10, you just got 5 divided by 2. We do not naturally do 10. We could do 12, we do 6. We use base 5 and 12, we get 60 minutes in an hour, or 60 seconds in a minute. Six, five times 12, right? Um, 
But uh, other than that little rant about these things getting confused, as I, as I have a bit of a passion against it, the Metro System is a very handy one for day-to-day -day stuff, but it's not in any way special or unique, and it's not the best one to be using if I'm trying to do astronomy. Um, it's not the best one to be using if I'm trying to do anything smaller than uh, you know the human scale, really. Uh, it's very good for day-to-day -day stuff. Um, it is not good for anything involving particle physics, for instance, where we never use it. And it's the same for languages, right? It's good to have a language everyone can speak together. And you know, at the moment, that seems to be English is the lingua franca, uh, as opposed to French, which was the previous lingua franca, or Latin, right? <laughs> uh, maybe it would be Arabic or Spanish one day. More likely, it would be some huge portmanteau of every major trade language in play. And those are handy. Um, but do you need to eliminate all your languages? There's a lot of thinking advantages to having, you know, being bilingual. Well, there's a lot of thinking advantages to having more than one unit of measure you use, too. A lot of mistakes I've seen when people are learning physics new or learning chemistry or other things is they forget to carry their units through them. And they do that more and it's only in metric because you don't have to. All the units are the same. There's just one. Um, when you actually have to convert units a lot, it reminds you to carry those around more and you make less mistakes, in my experience, my anecdotal experience, uh, by knowing multiple units and being comfortable with them. As to what the best unit of measure is, well, it certainly isn't the imperial system. Feet and yards is not great. So I guess it is metric by default, but... Don't get too rooted in the idea that one system of language or one system of currency or one system of measurement is going to fix any problems. It can be handy. You certainly want standardization, but computers can standardize things automatically. So it's not necessarily as important as it used to be either. Diversity is the spice of life. All right, I'm going to get in so much trouble for that answer too. People will <laughs> say, hey, yeah, it's the metric system. <laughs> when your base unit is a kilogram, you 1,000 grams, you got a bad system. <laughs> So next question is from Rommel Daniel of Vidal Soto. What do you think about the argument that humanoid aliens are more energy efficient than any other theoretical anatomy? That humanoid aliens are more more energy efficient than any other theoretical anatomy. Um, you know, that comes up in sci-fi a lot of times as to what I've always thought of as a rationalization for why your special effects buzzer can only handle putting humans on the screen or humanoids. People who look like humans, only they got a little forehead or ear difference for, or some random crap coming out of their mouth, which seems to be a popular one. Um, it's expensive to do special effects. <laughs> um there are a lot of advantages to the bipedal system, uh, and there's almost nothing that uses besides humans that I can think of. Um, more limbs you got, especially the bigger you are, the harder it's going to be to control them. We use a lot of our brain just for controlling our limbs and things like that. So, uh, I would not expect the humanoid form to be less common, but I can't think of any particular reason. It's more power efficient. It's very good at getting rid of heat, though. Um, I don't know that that's really unique to our geometry. But humans are much better at getting rid of heat than most other mammals. And that's a good advantage for us personally. But that's compared to other mammals who all use basically the same you know, basic anatomy that we do. I, I would say that the best thing for getting rid of heat is uh, not a sphere. The, the less sphere-like it is, the better it is at getting rid of heat. So it's got like a million little stegosaurus things popping out the back of its fins. And actually, I think there's been talk about whether dinosaurs might have used those as sometimes as ways of radiating heat. Um, the more radiating heat systems you got, the better you are getting rid of heat, and we're not really that good at radiating heat. You know, you could have an extra cooling fans on things like that, extra spikes. But maybe humanoid system would be... I would not be surprised to find other humanoid aliens if we found aliens, but I wouldn't assume that would be the norm either. Next question is from Hannah B. Is there a material that is scarce enough and hard enough to make in a post-scarcity civilization that it could function as a currency similarly to the gold standard? Um, well, there's two questions back to that one. The first is, uh, 
is there that material? The second, you know, that is there something besides gold? And then the other question that's packed in there is the, kind of the assumption that a commodity currency can be a good thing. Um, then potentially it can. We could argue that what we currently use, fiat currency, is a commodity currency of stability. It's based off the stability of the country that's issuing that coins. Um, but uh, commodity currencies of any kind always are very, very vulnerable to uh, anything technological that changes the production system. So let's say I'm making some alloy. That is a hyper-strong, never-decays metal that people just cannot realistically forge unless they've got themselves something like a neutron star and black hole factory to be churning out that alloy. And there are some weird things you might be able to make out of, like, quark matter or mag matter that we've looked at conceptually that might be things you could only manufacture inside giant super colliders. But uh, let's say that's the case. Someone invents a way to do that 10% more efficiently. And besides the fact that they are a quintillionaire right at the get-go from having done that, everybody else's money is now worth 10% less. Um, and uh, that can be quite a problem because, of course, some people have debts that are now worth 10% less, other people have savings that are worth 10% less, etc. That's the kind of problem you have with almost any commodity currency, which they have their advantages too, but the best mark process in the 1900s that made steel suddenly one-seventh the price it had been on the market that allowed us to do railroads, that allowed us to do skyscrapers, because it was something cheap to make steel. Uh, if your currency had been based on steel at that time, you probably wouldn't have had a chance to build any railroads because everybody would be too busy fighting wars with each other trying to collect on, on various debts. You know? <laughs> so, I don't think that we can make too many assumptions about what kind of special materials we might find, like the island of stability, things with 140 or so uh, protons in the atoms, things like that. We don't know. Uh, we might be able to make all sorts of weird stuff out of the other four quarks besides the up and down quark, your charm, strange, top and bottom, or truth and booty quarks. We might find that we can make stuff out of dark matter. That's our episode for two weeks from now. There might be all sorts of strange things we make that are awesome. I don't think it would be a good idea to make a currency out of them unless you've been using them for so long. Everyone was really confident that after a million years of having that thing, no one was going to improve it better. So that would be my thought on that one. Hmm. Next question is from Costas. Have you read any Warhammer 40k novels? Um, you know, I was going to say it would be easier to say which ones I haven't read, but they actually are hundreds and hundreds of them. There's a whole bunch of them on the... Let me get to point that thing down. Well, there's not that many of them on there. They're on the shelf right there with the light on it. Oh. Right, <laughs> okay. Them anyway. right I should probably down, turn the camera on rather. Right down there. Yeah, why don't we tell the math books? Yes. Yeah. He's got a lot of math books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, uh, most of them are on audiobook too, uh, which is why it's very nice to be a member of Audible because they are much cheaper on Audible. Um, but uh, let's see. Um, uh, it's a great setting for just strange thoughts in general. It has some bizarre realism to it, but I don't know. I just think it's funny as heck for the most part. Uh, I'm a fan of 40K, but uh, I would not say it's terribly realistic, scientifically speaking. At all. Not even a little bit. Next question is from Mario. Could a black hole just be a super dense object, like a neutron star, but it is so much more dense that it does not allow for light to escape, but it would remain the same object nonetheless? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of unknowns about black holes, and it doesn't have to be that dense either. Um, in order for something, to, the, the, the density a black hole needs to be a black hole uh, goes down the more massive it is. And the event horizon of one of those, its radius expands linear to mass. So if you double a black hole's mass, it doubles its actual uh, event horizon radius, or eight times more volume, which means eighth the density 
for that same amount, right? Um, or a quarter of the density because you double the mass. Um, black holes in the center of galaxies have huge event horizons, and the mass inside them could be very undense. Um, you need to get really dense to make tiny ones, um, but not so dense for other ones, right? Um, so if they are not single point-like objects, and that's very debated, then you could potentially have ones that were no denser than AR. And uh, like the Birch plants we talk about, where we stuff an entire galaxy to something you build a shell around it, the big, big brother of the Dyson sphere, um, those things are insanely undense. They are less dense than the space the space station is going through. And yet those would still be a black hole right underneath the ground layer. So it varies a bit. Hmm. Next question is from Melancholy. If we had heavily invested in nuclear propulsion and continued investing in space in the 1960s and 70s, how far along do you think we would be today? Um, that is a good question, though. Coming back real quick to the previous one, I should have finished it up with saying we don't know if a black hole has to be a point-like object or not. The event horizon is not the same as the singularity that's inside or the Planck star, whatever the dense thing might be in the center. We don't really have too many details on that because we don't have a full model of quantum gravity yet, so there's a lot of ifs. And a lot of uncertainties on those. And it's really hard to investigate because the nearest one is thousands of light years away and you'd die if you stuck your head down it. So, <laughs> um, the question was, uh, what was it? Nuclear propulsion. If we had invested um, and continued investing like we did in the 60s and 70s, where would we be today? If we had invested in nuclear power <laughs> properly um, and uh, it is good to be safe with technologies, I am not on the side of, of the nuclear advocates who feel like we've, we've regulated completely out of out of any just proportion, but we have overdone it, right? But it was right to be cautious too. Maybe we got a bit overboard, but at the same time, if we had been properly researching, developing nuclear technologies, uh, especially propulsion for not on use on this planet or in orbit, but for things between planets or even on the moon, we would be way further ahead of it. And we'd be a lot further ahead in, in trying to have Sources of power that don't run on dead dinosaurs. Um, although, of course, there are very few that will probably dinosaurs. But. <laughs> Next question from Blueberry Lane. Is there a way to know how much material you could get from a mantle or moho mine, like you described in your Colonizing the Oceans video? Uh, a moho mine, well, it's a, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Mohoravic discontinuity, which is basically the edge of the, of the mantle and, and, and the crust there of the planet. The idea there will be that you, if you Stick a big straw down into the, uh, the through the crunchy exterior of the planet. You could suck out its juicy material. <laughs> um, I think the first time I saw the Warden Moho mine was in a game called Total Annihilation that came out about in the late nineties. But the same time, Starcraft came out, and I loved that game. Um, and you had Moho mines to basically that was an entire setup where the two sides were ripping entire planets apart for the purpose of killing each other. There was no other reason. The fact they'd just been fighting for centuries and they really want to see if they got dead. <laughs> so. Not a lot of plot there. Um, but the uh, Moho mines theoretically should let you pull out just tons and tons and tons of metal. How much you could pull out would be very much based on at what point the thing you're trying to mine might collapse. But you should have it refilling pretty quickly. The trick is how you get the material back up there and mostly how you actually manage to get any kind of stable shaft down there because at that point, even a lot of the materials we think of as very hard and solid start acting more like a liquid. So it's tricky. Hmm. But gigatons worth of stuff at least. It would be way more productive than, say, a, a asteroid mine or a moon mine. There was more rocky material on our mantle than on our core than the rest of the solar system minus the gas giants combined. It's about the same amount. So, a lot of stuff here. Right in the ocean. 
well, right in the center of the planet, most of which is covered by the ocean. But it's it's thin all by the ocean. It's easy to get there. <laughs> <laughs> and it blows up less valuable stuff if it spills out. That's true. <laughs> Next question is from Voyager of Time. The Great Oxidation Event created most of the oxygen on Earth and forced bacteria to adjust to it. Do you think genetically engineered bacteria, that sounds scary, will be used for terraforming planets? Oh, I hope so. That'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> I, I love genetically engineering things as a concept. Uh, I want to have trees that grow bacon. Um, uh, Healthy bacon? Is, well, it would be really horrifying to think about what the sap probably would be in a tree like that. <laughs> Maple syrup. <laughs> Already made. <laughs> maple syrup trees. It's our all local area. One of the big economies we have locally is we grow maple syrup. So. Um... I think that uh, you know the the key is is it's so much easier to work with bacteria than trying to you know create large macroscopic organisms that have been gene tailored to something like a marsh environment. But yeah, yeah, I think that you probably would use a lot of bacteria to be using that because. But there's also that blowy kind of range. You like bacteria because once you get the right one there, all you have to sit there is wait patiently and add fuel, and there'll be a cajillion other things within whatever the doubling time to that number of power orders is. Um, you get tiny machines, though, that are self-replicating, and they're associating a very thin and blurry line between what would qualify as, say, a bacteria and what would qualify as a universal assembler machine. And maybe it's so blurry that it doesn't actually matter what the distinction is. You'll be using one or the other of those to terraform plants. You want to do that down in ecology, and I'm not sure that it is a one or the other at that point in time because, again, very blurry line. But, yeah. Lots of genetically engineered microbes in the future, and possibly bacon trees. Mm. <laughs> One of those sounds tasty. <laughs> so, next question is from Gadfly, and this person's asking the, the right question. Isaac, do you take your coffee black or with cream? They're betting on black. Um, I don't take it black anymore. I've been drinking coffee since I was four. <laughs> He's quite the coffee fiend. Yeah, yeah. Look who's talking. I know. <laughs> It's like the only coffee snob worse than me in the county. Um, I used to take it black all the time in the military until when the doctors told me that I should probably stop. Uh, then I later scored cold brew coffee, so I probably could give away drinking black again, but I actually take it with uh, cream and sugar tonight now. These days, I take it with cream and sugar. I used to take it black. Um, all right, we've got time for one more question, and then we're going to go ahead and call it quits for the day. All right, this question is from Alexander. Isaac, are individual asteroids actually worth quintillions of dollars? If so... Why hasn't anybody been rushing to get their hands on this cache? Uh, a typical mountain has a similar mass range like a typical asteroid is the same size. When was the last time? There were a million mountains on this planet. I think a million of them. When was the last time you heard anyone rush out to buy one? It's got the metals inside it, though. They, they, are, they are probably billions of dollars, if not trillions of dollars worth of iron in your typical mountain or coal. Or I have no idea what they even keep inside the mountains. Rocks. They are valuable rocks inside them. I'm not a geologist. But it's going to be a different ones than we have in these asteroids, to be sure. Um, there's a lot you can mine out of them. The, the idea is that you might be able to get easy access to a lot of heavier elements that would tend to settle. So you might have gold, platinum, things like that that are readily accessible in relatively small asteroids. You don't have to dig really deep to find the stuff or look out on a vein. But the other value of things like asteroids is that we don't have to drag them out of a really powerful gravity well to use them in space. That's why we're interested in their steel or their iron, I should say is we can more cheaply drag a megaton of iron back from the asteroid belt 100 million miles away than we can drag that same amount of stuff up from our atmosphere, through our atmosphere orbit, 
just 100 miles away. So a million times further for half the price or less, you know, it's going to be where you start sourcing that stuff from. But that's the same as a concept. There's nothing in the asteroids that isn't on Earth. Then there is more of Earth than there are those asteroids. But we have to live on top of Earth, and it's sometimes really difficult to dig underneath Earth, and people don't always like you doing so. You know, we, we say rare Earth elements, they're not rare. Rare Earth elements aren't even vaguely rare, they're all over the planet. Um, but they are incredibly toxic when you try to mine and refine them. People don't really want to do that. If you can produce them up in space and bring them back, you're ready to go. Maybe that economy changes a little bit. So, hmm. But the thing is, we're not really interested in asteroid mining or moon mining for bringing stuff home to Earth other than gold and platinum and other things that are maybe more easily or abundantly acquired out there and brought back here. We're interested in mining space to more cheaply get stuff into space so we're not spending a thousand dollars a kilogram to have the stuff up there you know so that's that's the real value of those there i'm mm. sorry i missed a lot of people's questions today uh and we'll be back again in about a month uh with sarah can we join us i want to thank david thomas again for helping us out today and if you do have any questions if you want to leave them in the comments of the video i will try to get back to them later today or tomorrow thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next week So that will wrap us up for the day. I want to thank everyone for joining us and again if we didn't get to your question, feel free to post it as a comment below and I'll try to get to it this evening. Also you can continue the conversation at any of the forums on Facebook, Reddit, Discord, or our website IsaacArthur.net. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you at the